It's one thing to say that gender is performed, and that's a little different from saying gender is performative. When we say gender is performed, we usually mean that we've taken on a role, we're acting in some way, and that our acting or our role playing is crucial to the gender that we are and the gender that we present to the world. To say that gender is performative is a little different because we act as if that being of a man or that being of a woman is actually an internal reality or something that's simply true about us, a fact about us. Actually, it's a phenomenon that's being produced all the time and reproduced all the time. So to say gender is performative is to say that nobody really is a gender from the start. I know it's controversial, but that's my claim. Hello, you're listening to the National Theatre Podcast. I'm Sam Sedgman, and that was Judith Butler, philosopher and gender theorist, recorded during a video interview for BigThink.com. Gender, she says, is performative. Whatever our biological sex, we all make choices about how we represent our gender to the world. Our appearance, our voice, our body language. Now, not everyone agrees with that idea, but it got us thinking. In the theatre, we're thinking about performance all the time. And so today, we wanted to unpick that idea a little bit by asking, how do we perform gender? We're sharing three interviews with you today that get at this question from different angles. We're talking to a body language expert to tell us how men and women represent themselves as powerful. We speak to Dame Harriet Walter about how she's tackled some of the most iconic male roles in the Shakespearean canon. And we talk about gender fluidity and performance with a drag queen. A couple of disclaimers for you up front. These three interviews don't speak for everyone. We all have our own experiences of our bodies and our identities, far too many to pack into this one podcast. So, how do we perform gender? I brought this idea up with a few of my friends who said, I'm not performing, I'm just me. And that's Okay, that's true, you are, but even when we're just being us and not thinking about it, our body communicates with the outside world, whether we want it to or not. Most people have heard of body language, but most are not aware of just how important it is when we're interacting with other people. This is India Ford. She's a body language coach. That means she works with entrepreneurs, politicians, celebrities, all kinds of people to improve how their body talks. I mean, for instance, Sam, let me just ask you a very quick question, if I may. Oh, God, go for in it. In any interaction, how important do you think your words are? Oh. So you want to come across as confident, mm. credible, competent, warm and engaging. So you're trying to make that kind of impression. How important do you think your words are going to be in that interaction? Well, I've got an English degree, so I'd like to think that they're quite important. I'm going to say half. 50%, you're saying? I'm saying 50%. Okay. Right, the correct figure is seven. Oh, God. So you're way off the mark there, Sam. <laughs> so 93% of what we communicate is... 93% is of our communication comes from our non-verbal channels, which mm. is our body. So 38 is voice tone, but the lion's share is taken up by our, by our body language, mm. by our bodies. So, for instance, if I said to you, um, Sam, it's so nice to meet you. 
Or I could say it again. Sam, it's so nice to meet you. Obviously, the listeners can't see me, but you can probably, you can see So you're I'm looking doing. away, you're putting your hands on your hips and not making eye contact with me. And I immediately feel uh, like the temperature in the room has dropped. <laughs> like uh, you're not interested in me. Uh, like you couldn't care less who I am or what we're doing here. Just by turning your head, putting your hands on your hips. That's perfect. Oh, That's good. perfect. <laughs> so top marks for that. Thanks. So basically that explains to you how or what those figures mean, where that 7% or I was saying exactly the same thing, hmm. almost exactly the same thing verbatim. But the message I was delivering was very, very different. You were receiving a very di different message and I was sending a very different message. Another question for you, Sam, how, how quick do you think somebody will form an impression? When you walk through the door, how quickly do you think you could project those kind of traits that you want to project like confidence, charisma, presence, a commanding presence. How quickly do you think people will look at you and make those kind of assessments? So you kind of asked two questions there. One was okay. how quickly do you think I could project them and I would not be able to start thinking about it at all, but right. I reckon people make a judgment on me instantly, as soon as they see me. Absolutely. It's less than one second. And because this is going on on a subliminal level, how it must be quite difficult to make people do this effortlessly. Absolutely. It's not effortless. It, it takes work. If you want to if you want to be able to communicate like the world's most powerful and successful people communicate, you're going to have to change what you're doing. If you're not getting the results that you're getting, you're going to have to, and expecting the same results, then that's just nonsense. Without getting too stereotyped about this, what uh, are there common things that you find that men have to work on and common things you find that women have to work on? Yes, men tend to have a natural kind of tendency to go into a very alpha mode. Right. Especially when they're nervous. Mm. So they, and, and that can be a very big problem because it can make them look very arrogant and even very defensive. Women will tend to do the opposite. So women, the, the three biggest mistakes women make, especially in the corporate world from my own experiences, they tend to tilt their head when they're talking. So the tilted head is fine. It's a great gesture if you want to empathize and you want to show that you're listening. But if you're talking about something very important, then it makes you look very submissive as though you're not very sure. The other thing that women tend to do is they tend to over smile. So it's this, hello, how are you? Are you okay? <laughs> you know, it's this kind of, it's, it's more of a, an, an appeasement smile. Mm. So they're trying to make you feel better. Well, really, it's not their job to make you feel better. Yes, you want to build rapport, but you don't want to have a, a 70s game show post smile <laughs> plastered across your face. If you're doing it all the time, it becomes meaningless. It does. And it, it just makes you look like a likable loser. <laughs> and what's the third thing? The third thing is that uh, they tend to sort of display girlish gestures. So when they start feeling nervous, a woman may start twiddling her hair without realising. Again, all these things happen on an unconscious level. And the other thing, actually, one other thing, if I can just throw this in the mix, is they don't take up enough space. So a man, in any situation, a man will spread out, they'll throw their things around, <laughs> claim territory, and a woman will walk into a boardroom, sit down nice and neatly, make sure all her, her belongings are sort of you know, piled up in a nice tight corner and they might sort of stare, sort of sit or stand in a very kind of constricted manner. So 
that space thing is very important because how we non-verbally display status and power is through heightened space. As we recorded this interview, we were in the last gasp of the election campaign and we were really interested to ask India about female politicians. I think women in all areas face a lot of challenges, again, down to the gender bias. So even in this day and age, there is so much gender bias out there. You know, we'll, we'll look at a, at a, a man and woman do exactly the same thing and perceive them in a very different way. So he's assertive, she's aggressive. Right. He, she, he's strong and decisive, she's just bossy. Mm. He's a leader, she's power hungry. So we're kind of hardwired to see the, you know, to see women, we're actually hardwired to see women in a very nurturing kind of persona. Mm. And when, when they deviate from that, we don't like it. So with politicians, this is why, whether it's people, uh, women in the corporate world or whether it's politicians, women politicians, it's so much harder for them to achieve what men achieve. In the UK, the Conservative Party, the Greens, the Scottish Nationals are all led by women. But we still get headlines critiquing our Prime Minister's outfit as she walks to give a speech outside number 10. So, how does gender inform the body language of these female politicians as they seek to present themselves as powerful people? We asked India to watch and review some clips of three politicians specifically, Theresa May, Angela Merkel and Hillary Clinton to explain what their body language was telling us as they stood on the world stage. We talked about them each in quite general terms, but you'll hear us reference the specific clips sometimes. We have links to them in the show notes, but I'll be describing anything visual you need to know about them here. When we came to talk about Theresa May, we focused on her first appearance at Prime Minister's Questions against the opposition leader Jeremy Corbyn. It's the usual shouty atmosphere of the House of Commons. Everyone's cheering and jeering. And Theresa May steps up to the podium in the middle of a crowded room for the first time. What really comes across when you watch Theresa May communicating is that she's very, very rigid. Mm. She doesn't move her body too much. When she's talking, she moves her head quite a lot. And in fact, she sort of moves her head sometimes too much. She does that kind of bobbing head motion which is not a good thing it can make you look very submissive so she might say something and start just nodding her head back and forth as mm. though she's looking for validation by the way everything i say today is apolitical okay. you know it's it, there's no bias towards any single party i am just talking about what i see on the surface that's yeah. all she also has a tendency and it could be because she's quite tall to kind of constrict inwards a little bit Sort of to bend forward with her yeah, head. Yeah, she sort of bends her head forward. That's the sort of making yourself smaller thing exactly. you talked about Exactly. It kind of makes her look smaller and it loses her a lot of power. When she's in Prime Minister's Questions, yeah. which is a really strange environment to be in because you're you're sort of addressing the people in the room, you're sort of performing for people watching and cutting it up in a newsroom um, and you're at the sort of podium. Yeah. I wonder if there are there any, any specific behaviours that you see there? That particular clip, she looked as though she was confident, apart from one point where she got up and she adjusted her her jacket, oh. which you tend to do. It's like forming a barrier when you flee. It's a, it's a sign of nervousness. Mm. A bit like when guys adjust their cufflinks when they walk in. Right. There's okay. no reason for them to adjust their cufflinks. <laughs> what they're basically, it's a, it's a 
pacifying gesture. It's like, I don't know what to do with my hands. Exactly. Here's I don't know something what to do with my to hands. With my hands. And, I mean, you know, Prince Charles does that quite a lot and so does Prince William. They start, you know, adjusting their... And you'll see people on, on sort of chat shows, stars walking in there sort of do this. So they're kind of forming a barrier. It's a sign of nerves, right, basically. Okay. So she does that. But then she does look quite open. She said something like... Well, well, Jeremy, you know, you've always accused the Conservative Party of being a party not about women. Oh, is that why they keep making us prime ministers? So she seemed really pleased with herself for delivering that line. (laughs) Everybody started howling. But in subsequent sort of interviews, you just see that sort of stern, stilted look. Again, it could be dependent upon who she's facing. Obviously, if you're facing somebody like Jeremy Paxman, it will be a natural to suddenly think, okay, you know, this is going to be difficult. Maybe she just thinks that Jeremy Corbyn is a very easy target. I don't know. We then moved on to talking about Angela Merkel, who India described as being quite warm and grandmotherly. We watched the video of her meeting Donald Trump in the Oval Office during a photo call. They're sat side by side, and it's clear Merkel wants to shake hands with Trump for the cameras, but he won't do it. He doesn't give her his hand. She's sitting there saying, she actually says to him, they want a handshake. He totally ignores her, but she still is sitting there. She's still got her her body angled towards him and she's got that um, appeasement smile on her face. It's as though she's pleading to him. He said to one of the, the reporters, send a good picture back to Germany. He said that and she starts laughing. Which, first of all, it wasn't a joke. Secondly, it wasn't funny. But I don't know if you've heard the quote, a rich man's joke is always funny. <laughs> yeah, that is true. You know, so it, it, she showed a lot of very, very weak body language and she gave a lot of her, her power away so much during that clip. What she should have done was she should have just angled her body away from him so she didn't look as though she was pleading to him to, mm. to hell. She should have just totally angled her way her body away from him just faced the press back um taken off that appeasement smile off her face and just shown the fact that she wasn't happy Mm. you know just projected that this is not the way you behave on the world stage that is i i wonder if that is quite a gendered thing actually the idea that uh there's i guess probably more pressure on a on a woman in the public eye to look like she's smiley and happy in a way that I don't think Donald Trump cares whether he looks happy or not. And I think that's the case for a lot of male politicians right. that I can think of. And it's like you said with, with Merkel, like she's she's in a position of power, but she almost acts like she's not. And that's how she gets people on side. She acts in a sort of deferring manner and exactly like your exactly. friendly grandmother. Deferring is a very good word. That's a very good way to describe it. Yes, exactly. And that's how most powerful people are. Up next was Hillary Clinton also facing off against Trump, this time in the presidential debates. The clip we watched was split-screen, so you could watch Clinton on one half of the screen as Trump attacks her on the other. And while this is happening, she doesn't say anything. She smiles through it. She actually manages it very, very well. However, and I think this is probably, possibly one of the reasons why she lost, in a way she does it too well. Oh, she seems too polished. She's very polished. She's very contained. She's very at ease in the spotlight, which would make sense. She's been in the spotlight for decades. Where she sort of fell down was her warmth. And that really came across. 
Right. It's kind of the opposite. It's like very contrived. You know, it's very difficult when you're in it. Mm. You're getting trained and this is being thrown at you, this and thrown at me. You know, it takes somebody to say, hey, wait, 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 wait a second. We may have done too much here. We need to see some other real person coming through. Right. She should have just behaved in a much more authentic way. Mm. You know, showed the camera and the audience and the listeners at home what she was feeling. Mm. It's really interesting the more we talk about this, The uh, you, we talked at the beginning about uh, if a man behaves in a certain way, it's seen as positive, and if a woman behaves in the same way, it's often seen as negative. And it sounds, as we're talking about these examples of these female politicians who are in positions of power, it's it's really interesting that they've sort of had to find a channel in a much narrower palette of, of, of ways at their disposal that project power without um, upsetting the status quo if you see what I mean. So a man has an awful lot more, a variety of ways that he can project authority and, and power and presence. They're able to get away, they're able to act and behave mm. in an alpha way and be seen as a leader. Mm. But when with women, they don't. This is why they have to work so much harder. There is no shortage of actresses capable of playing powerful women on the stage, but there is a shortage of parts. Take a look at the classics and you see great opportunities to play kings, warriors, rakish romantic heroes, but the catalogue of great female roles is far slimmer. One way of getting around that, of course, if you're an actress, is just to play the men. And why not? Fiona Shaw played Richard II, Maxine Peake tackled Hamlet, Recently in London, we've seen Glenda Jackson do King Lear at the Old Vic, and Tamsin Gregg reinterpreted Twelfth Night's Malvolio as Malvolia here at the National. And the Donmar Warehouse gave us three all-female productions of Julius Caesar, Henry IV and The Tempest, starring Dame Harriet Walter as Brutus, as Henry and as Prospero. It's quite the task for any actor, even a dame who's been clocking up iconic Shakespearean performances all her life, but Harriet's no stranger to playing boys. In fact, she wrote a book called Brutus and Other Heroines about playing different Shakespearean roles, both men and women. Now, I'll take any chance to meet a dame, wouldn't you? So we asked Harriet, very nicely, why has she played so many boys? I think I totted up about 20 roles that I've played that were masculine. Um, but only in 2012 did I play a man rather than a boy, and that was Brutus in the Donmar all-female Shakespeare trilogy. Well, it wasn't a trilogy then. We were just going to do that play. Um, we just started as Julius Caesar, and I was going to play Brutus. As a child, I, I now realise that, of course, I wanted to be a boy, like a lot of girls did, but it might have been because they had a better time. It wasn't, it wasn't a sort of interior, I'm in the wrong body kind of feeling. It was just that I wanted to matter. I wanted to be as important as boys were. And I wanted to be as free as they were to take risks and climb trees and explore. And so that set me off with a slightly boyish kind of mentality. And I used to watch boys a lot. And um, it, I sort of absorbed it into my bones, as you know, which I think is a very primeval <laughs> human activity where you almost absorb people into you by imagining them, by, by watching them, by, you know, um, becoming them in some way. And um, so I always had that sort of ability to, to get myself into the body of a 
boy. And I played all the girls in Shakespeare who dress as boys, which is, again, a different thing altogether. Playing across gender is, is baked into the DNA of Shakespeare very much so. What differences were there for you playing Brutus um, versus playing uh, a woman who dresses up as a man in terms of the sort of the architecture of that crossing gender? Well, it feels a lot more illegitimate because although you say it's baked into the DNA, it's also not, it was never intended by Shakespeare that a woman would play a man or a woman would play a woman, probably. <laughs> well, yes, that's another thing because, of course, all those roles that you were saying, it's the women who dress up as men, they were men dressing up as women dressing up as men. And exactly. so they were never intended as roles for women to be played on any front. And and they're always, and it's always mentioned in the play and played on and made and, and commented on and punned on the fact that these are girls playing boys or boys playing girls playing boys. Whereas playing a woman, just a feminist 21st century woman deciding that she has a right to play a man's role has a very different kind of feeling to it because the audience, you, you have to actually begin the story because nobody's written it before so it's a very different responsibility than you know something that's built into Shakespeare's writing. The word responsibility is really interesting because you are I guess sort of creating that idea for the first time as you said does that responsibility affect how you chose to create that character? I suppose the main the top responsibility is we have to be good we have to be good at it it's the old adage women have to be twice as good as the men in order to do the same job. Um, so there is an element that we've got to prove to a whole bunch of people that we're capable of doing it. And that was the first fear. Um, and, you know, because if there was anything anybody could seize on as a criticism that might just be a criticism because you're not a good enough actor, you were going to wipe away the possibility for future actresses to, to take those parts on because somebody somewhere would say, you see, it doesn't work. Okay, so there's two things here. If you're a woman, you can take a male role and play it as a man, or you can turn that character into a woman. I asked Harriet, in their all-female productions at the Donmar, how did they approach it? In our Donmar Warehouse trilogy, it was always going to be that we were playing men. And the whole exercise was about women getting their hands on their mouths round the words that the men were speaking and the and the you know that was the intention um to kind of get the audience off the the hook of worrying about what we were we set it in a female jail but if you choose to there are still there are productions where people have chosen to make a, a character or two or three characters female that's great if you're giving women a job where they wouldn't normally get a look in and getting the experience of playing Shakespeare because only by the experience do you learn how to do it. That's fine, but I would argue that you've got to make it very clear in or be clear in your head why you've chosen that character can be a woman and that other character can't be a woman. India said the body language of a powerful man and a powerful woman aren't really that different. But I wanted to know from Harriet's experience, does it feel different for her when she plays those roles? Yes, it does feel different because, um, you know, if, you, if you're familiar with the terms working from the outside in and working from the inside out, and basically that means that there are two approaches to acting, you hope they meet in the middle, um, that, that you can either feel happy and therefore smile, or you can make yourself smile 
and that will make you feel happy. So if you start to stride around with the confidence of a man, um, and I don't say all men are confident, obviously, but men in the positions that I was playing, they were kings of England, they were generals of Rome, <clears throat> they had power and their voices were heard and they were important. Um, and to, to stride around in that position and not be apologetic when you walk into a room, but just grab the first seat that's available and move people out of the way if they're in your way, um, because what you've got to say is important. Um, that if you actually do that physically from the outside in, it starts to work on your interior and make you feel important <laughs> um, and entitled and um, within the play responsible again, because leadership has responsibility, which was the, the sort of tempering side of playing a man um, and the side that made me learn a lot about what it might be to be a man or a woman now with power like political power. Um, so those experiences that I wouldn't normally have, um, I got through play acting. Some of the things that just made me a better actor because, you know, one of the things I'm not, I'm, you know, like a lot of people, I use my arms too much. I wave, you know, <laughs> I saw the air like Shakespeare told you not to. And so if you're in a position of power and you don't have to question your power really, Everybody calls you the King of England, so that's what you are. Um, you don't need to demonstrate. You don't need to wave your arms around. You don't need to emphasize things. It made me more direct. It made me more clean um, as an actor, which is all good. It made me stiller. And it made me find power just from, you know, being given power. I've heard you describe yourself as a feminist actor. And I just wondered if you could explain a little bit about what you mean by that. Um, it's almost an, a redundant term now, I think, I don't know, but in my generation when I was starting out, um, I first heard of feminism when I was 20, so that was when I was at drama school. And I didn't sit there and say, I'm now going to be a feminist actress. It's just that you bring your philosophy, particularly with Shakespeare, because Shakespeare requires you to go very deep. So to actually bring your personal politics to bear on a, on, a, on a Shakespeare play was not really done before. And yet, I would say almost everybody I know does now. You've written this book, Brutus and Other Heroines. And I wonder, is the decision to write that book part of uh, that feeling like you want to express your political beliefs in the theatrical world? Yes, I think it probably is. I mean, you know, I'd got uh, various essays in my bottom drawer that I'd been asked to write at various points. And that was the sort of backbone of a book. It became sort of, well, it's going to start with Ophelia, which was the first Shakespeare part I played, and end up with pointing towards Prospero, which I was about to play. Mentioning that path that uh, there's a, there is a traditional path that uh, a male actor does take, I guess, through the, the classical canon, right? And there's there is... Um, I remember one of the things you've you've said is where does an actor go after playing the death of Cleopatra, and um, I'm really curious to hear what you, how you feel about that path, and especially the the later half of that path, given that a lot of the roles that are available to women within the classical canon tend to be younger roles. Um, it, it, there's nothing I can do about it because Shakespeare's dead and he can't <laughs> write any he can't write any more parts. So you know the thing is that he did run out of women's parts after a certain age you know I mean you can you can point to a handful a handful 
of female roles after the age of... I mean, Cleopatra was 39, for heaven's sakes. She's always traditionally played by an older actress. But, you know, all the parts he did write on the whole were, you know, Coriolanus's mother needn't have been more than 40, you know, <laughs> maybe 50. You know, so I'm talking about parts for um, actors, actresses who've l devoted themselves and loved being in the Shakespeare tradition, that very rewarding field of work and suddenly there's nothing for us to do to me it equates with um you know somebody who's a classical pianist and is building and building and getting better and better and deeper and deeper but is suddenly told aged 40 sorry you're not allowed to play Beethoven anymore because you're not the right gender do you know and you're not <laughs> the right age it's it's the equivalent of that so you feel god I've got all these skills I've got all this yearning to keep doing it and I'm not going to be asked to do it because Shakespeare didn't write it. So that's quite hard to face. Um, and so partly parallel with that, you're longing for current playwrights mm. to write more material that would give you anything like the, the sort of challenge that Shakespeare would. But I'm afraid the obvious other recourse is to play the male parts. And I do want to ask you about that. You're in this position and, and you are able to perform any part that's written, but you don't have the power to create those parts yourself, I guess. Can that be frustrating? It, extremely frustrating. It, well, you know, I think what's rather great is that young women I keep hearing are creating their own projects and writing their own material, um, not waiting by the phone until someone sees them in a certain way um, and thinks they'd be right if they put them in this context, you know, which they haven't got any control over. Certainly a, a lot of men I know of my age who are still acting have the luxury of saying, well, I just, you know, I wait till the next job comes up. I don't really sort of steer my career. Um, and I go, well, that's a sort of luxury because if we didn't steer our career, nothing would happen at all, possibly. Before going to meet Harriet, I'd read an article which asked if the increase in the number of women like her playing parts written for men could be heralding the decline of the great male actor. Here's what she had to say about it. Well, I remember somebody writing a piece in a paper about the death of the great American novelist. But you're ignoring the fact that a lot of women, a lot of men of different ethnic origins are writing great novels. You're just not calling them great novelists because your idea of a great novelist is a white male um, because that's the tradition. And I would say the same, that the, the tradition of the great hero actor with the great Laurence Olivier mantle, the, the, you know, Edmund Keane mantle, is a tradition and literally that. And uh, that those days are perhaps under threat but they're not under threat yet numerically by any <laughs> any shadow of thought. You know, there's still... Um, I think someone answered that piece in the paper and just showed statistically how few women were actually doing these parts. Um, and also, you know, the same thing was said when, when black actors started playing English kings. You know, people were very threatened by it. And now, I my theory, maybe I did it... No, I think my theory is that um, you know, there's room for all of us, as long as we do it well, as long as there's a reason why we're doing it, um, rather than I just want to show off and it's my turn. You know, as long as there's a reason I think I can bring something to this Hamlet that, you know, somebody else can't. 
um, then the more the merrier. Harriet Walters' book, Brutus and Other Heroines, is out now. Now, we've talked politics, we've talked Shakespearean tragedy. It's all got a bit heavy. But guys, you don't have to be a dame to dress up like the opposite sex. Anyone can do it. Dressing up as someone else is fun. It can be a celebration. It can be flippant. It can be an art. And that art is drag. Drag queens and drag kings have long been a fixture of London's nightlife. And they're obviously well-practised experts in how we perform gender. So we asked John Sizzle, a founder of one of East London's foremost queer and alternative night spots, The Glory, to tell us about drag, what it means and why it matters. (laughs) Well, my name is John Sizzle. That's my stage name, kind of my pet name, if you like. And I am a drag queen. How do Mm. you describe drag to people who aren't that familiar with it? Uh, Well, drag queens generally tend to be about comedy. Yeah. I'm definitely about comedy. Um, I would class myself more as a comedian than an actor or a performer or anything. And I just want to, because a lot of people listening to this won't have that much of an understanding of of drag I just wanted the process you, yeah the I want process. to I want to talk about the process I want to talk about getting ready what do you do what are the different steps you go through to turn yourself Ooh, from John Nolan into John, John Sizzle. Sizzle um well and you keep the moustache I keep the moustache I do fresh I freshly shave but I have a moustache it's part of the, the comedy um I don't shave my body I don't do anything like that I'm fair haired as well so I'm, I kind of get away with murder but it's all about the heel the huge shoe that we have to put our big feet into. It's all about the tights. It's all about, in my, well, I wear dresses and skirts. You never find me in a trouser. Um, and I have costume made. So it's tricky stuff to get on. Do you uh, do padding at all? No, I don't do breasts or hips or anything like that. It's not, I'll do cleavage, but it's mine. <laughs> It's mine. Um, it's the process. Really, is is when you're going into it. It's about the the makeup moment. It's a sitting down in a dressing room, laying all your kit out, and just spending that hour. Because if you, I can get mine down to forty minutes, but it's roughly about an hour, and it's putting on the layers, and it's thinking about your show, what the gig that you're going to be doing, and it's it's quite funny when you see people doing their makeup they will pull certain faces in the mirrors they're getting ready just to sort of and you can see that's them being you know being their drag selves um i see it as as costume as opposed to just being um feminine or being a woman i i, I see it more of a fluid um path between the two forms of dressing mm. um I mean, you get to be a real hyper real version of of yourself and of femininity, if you like. I su- I don't think I necessarily express myself as a woman. But I, then again, I don't know what I mean by those words anymore. Do you know what I mean? I, yeah. I, I think I've kind of, it gets to a point when you, when you have no shame or embarrassment or, or reticence when you dress up. 
um, I, I think because I'm so over that point that it means absolutely everything and nothing to me. Does that make any kind of sense? Yeah. I don't feel, I, you know, if you put me on the tube train at rush hour in drag, I might feel a bit anxious. But generally, it's, I don't have any issues with it at all. It's my given right. I mean, I have run for the bus in it. <laughs> I have cycled across London in drag late for a gig. I find it quite funny, actually. I find it quite punky. And I think it is a form of street culture, like street fashions, like like the punks were. And I think it is a two fingers up to the, the patriarchy as, as such. And do you know where the word comes from? I've heard it come from, I've heard lots of rumours. Where, where do you think it comes from? Drag, dressed as a girl, um, a Shakespearean phrase that he used to scribble in the side of his scripts mm. when he was explaining that um, a certain character had to be a male had to be playing a female yeah. when women weren't allowed on the stage. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Back in uh, Shakespeare's time, you couldn't have women on stage. Right. So Although there right. were some women on stage, but uh, illegally. Ah. Um, yeah. And that's why all the plays are, you know, have... Like Judy Dench was probably illegally in the, in the background <laughs> dressed as buttons. We'll explain where she gets all her experience from. Um, <laughs> are you different when you're in drag? Yeah, I'm definitely, you know, the volume knobs turned up to 11. <laughs> it's very spinal tap, you know, it's, uh, I think I, I can do things that, that are inherently me, but I can do it, I can do them bigger and louder and get away with them. I can be funnier, ruder, louder, um, more caustic, I can be more political, I can... Um, I could just get away with a lot more, you know? Um, I find that power thing that we're talking about really interesting because one of the things that um, uh, the body language expert we spoke to said is that often men habitually take up more space than women, not just in the yes. way they sit or anything, but they they sort of, uh, they spread their things out in a room and when they come into a room, they, they occupy space more than women yeah. do. And the way you talked about yourself when you're in drag is that you're much more... Um, you're much more confident and much more kind of self-expressive and I guess you take up more space as a performer. Oh, I take up quite a lot of space as the it hair is, takes yeah. up more space as well. Well, yeah, I mean, like, it's, it's an interesting point. I think, God, my ego's quite, I think it's quite swollen as a man and never mind the drag, so I'm probably like this huge, this huge tornado. That, <laughs> I mean, people pay for that, though. It's their mm. fault for, for making me that person. That's the way I look at it. I mean, part of part of what drag is, right, is also it's it's playing with our ideas of gender and our ideas of yeah. what a man is and what a woman is. Yeah. Well, gender and femininity and masculinity, they can be completely different things. Mm -hmm. This whole dis discourse about non-binary and how we uh, present ourselves or how we perceive ourselves to be, it's it's been it's been really enlightening. I think it's it's quite interesting. We're here talking about drag queens but have you seen drag kings recently yeah they are amazing they are the new force of drag it's just it's an interesting time but you know it's just like going to work it's making a presentation mm -hmm. you don't you know it is you it is a different version of yourself but it's still but it's all an act isn't it life is an act mm -hmm. you're always presenting a different version of yourself every room you walk into yeah. it's just mine happens to be beautiful and sexy and relevant <laughs>
You can catch John and other acts from The Glory performing at the National Theatre's River Stage later this summer. Find out more at nationaltheatre.org.uk. That's all the chat about gender and performance that we have time for today, but thank you so much for listening. If you like the show, please let us know. Leave us a review on your podcast app. Send us a tweet with the hashtag NTPodcast. We're at National Theatre on Twitter, and you can also find us on Tumblr, on Facebook, Instagram, basically everywhere. This episode was produced and edited by the wonderful Emma Reedy and presented and co-produced by me, Sam Sedgman, with help from our social content editor, Nick Mulligan. The executive producer was Kate Moore and the music was by Alex Painter. A huge, huge thank you to our lovely contributors this week, India Ford, Dame Harriet Walter and John Sizzle. Thanks also to BigThink.com for letting us use the clip of Judith Butler at the top of the show. We'll be back in two weeks with our next show and we'll see you then.